Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to the Deep Drinks Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Um, we have Dr. Josh, graduated who graduated from John Hopkins University in 2017 with a PhD in seriology. It's our first doctor on the Deep Drinks Podcast. Josh runs the Digital Hammurabi YouTube channel um, and podcast alongside his amazing wife, Megan Lewis, um, as well as co-host the Hebane Podcast, which stands for, is that right, Hebane? Hebane mm-hmm. Podcast, which stands for Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near East. Dr. Josh has authored multiple books, um, with two of his most popular being Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery?, um, which, um, spoiler alert, yes, it seems <laughs> so. And, uh, and uh, the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume One, and Volume Two is coming out shortly. Uh, Dr. Josh has also appeared on many popular YouTube um, channels, such as The Atheist Experience with Matt Delahunty, uh, the Myth Vision Podcast, the Non Sequitur Show, Apologia, The Thinking Atheist, and Modern Day Debate, among many others. I hope I didn't miss any um, any major ones. So, welcome, Josh, Dr. Josh. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. That was a very, very gracious intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was last night I was writing it and I'm like, man, like it just keeps going. Like you're doing so much <laughs> at the moment. Is it, is it your full-time job at this stage or? No, definitely not. Um, and uh, and actually Megan, Megan runs Digital Hammurabi um, and she does. I just, I'm, I've become kind of a contributor to it now, uh, but she has really taken, taken off. Uh, I think she's almost up to 35,000 subscribers now. So um, she's awesome. doing a wonderful job. But yeah, but yeah I, I, I feel like I I end up on more places outside of our channel uh, than I do on our channel anymore. I think I doing doing interviews and, and things, which is great. Which is great. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I'm here. Popularity so. has seemed to spike um, recently. Well, I mean, uh, I think it's I think it's maybe just because I know people that are a lot smarter than me. That's all it is. They're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we can get Josh, then maybe we can get this other better person. <laughs> no, nah, I don't think that's the case. Um, so we like you're, you're in America, obviously mm-hmm. you're America. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely America because the, the drink of choice that you chose is bourbon. So Woodford Reserve. So I went out and got a bottle. Uh, if anyone doesn't know the deep drinks podcast is where we sip the guests uh, drink of choice and we discuss deep topics. So, Josh reckons we drink this neat, so we drink this neat. This is what we do. <laughs> you don't have to. I just, I'm, I'm not creative. That's all it is. No, well, you know what? Like the, some of the the drinks that um some of the guests have asked for, I've had to go out. I've never even like, like I think uh, the last guest we drank cucumber and mint, uh, uh, like a specific, very specific cucumber and mint vodka, and I was like, mm. I've never tasted it in my life. I love whiskeys, so this is. I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny, a very short, funny. Uh, story um, about my great inexperience drinking alcohol. Um, <laughs> we were talking about this just a little bit before before we started recording. But um, when I was in Germany, uh, I I did a Fulbright year um, in 2014 to 2015, and uh, I had a friend out there who was. So I was I guess I was 30, 35, 36 at the time. Does that sound right? And uh, he was 20 and we, we lifted weights together. That was our commonality. That's always our connection. And we went out one Friday night and I hadn't eaten 
and you walk everywhere, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I was like lifting weights like four hours a day or something dumb, and I hadn't eaten dinner yet. And it was probably eight o'clock at night. And he said, man, there's this, we'll, we'll go get a Yufka, uh, Turkish, like a Turkish, uh, it's like a Euro. Um, but he said, we'll go get one of those, but let's get a drink first. I know this great bar. So we went down, it was like this cellar and uh, sat down there. And he said, have you ever had a deep sea diver? And I said, I don't, I don't even know what that is. So it's like, they, they bring out this, looks like a beer glass full of what turns out to be like four different types of rum with a little bit of lime or something in it. And they give you a straw. I mean, it, like, <laughs> what? So, of course, I have no experience. I have a totally empty stomach. I'm probably a little dehydrated. And I, I drank this whole thing through in about three Whoa. minutes. Oh. And uh, it turned out to be, another, like, the next hour and a half was not great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, those are the types of experiences that I have with alcohol. So you will see me sipping this very, very slowly. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I have this, like, it's 10 a.m. where I am in Australia. Mm. Uh, luckily, day drinking isn't frowned upon in Australia. So, um, I'm, you know, I will just continue on my awesome Saturday and probably keep the buzz going until I pass out at 6 p.m. <laughs> uh, so... Um, what I find really interesting uh, about uh, what what you what you've written about and, and who you are as a person is you started your journey off as a pretty towards your PhD as a pretty fundamentalist Christian is that is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Could you yeah. could could you give us a bit of a rundown on just like your journey? Um, I guess like how did you become a Christian? How did you get involved in um, wanting to study the Bible formally? And then eventually we'll talk about what sh kind of shifted in your faith. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I I grew up in a very fundamentalist evangelical household. Um, my uh, my parents are both evangelical Christians, uh, like, you know, six days, six literal days of creation, Earth is 6,000 years old, you know, all those things. Um, evolution is satanic. Um, mm. And uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were... Like he he was a ordained minister at one point, um, but they were, I think, in a lot of ways responsible for, you know, training me up in the way that I should go, right? And so, you know, I remember, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, um, but I do remember being five or six years old and having been told on a fairly regular basis that I was going to hell, and uh, I remember sitting on my bunk bed one night and just crying and thinking I, and I don't want to go to hell. And, uh, uh, of course I knew by that point, the plan of salvation quite well. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, for all those, you know, Christians out there listening that are doubting whether I was really saved, uh, you know, I knew that I was a sinner and that the penalty for my sin was death. That would be separation from God and eternity in hell. And that there was nothing that I could do because I was a sinful person to uh, to bring about my own uh, salvation and, and be forgiven of my sin. But that Jesus Christ had done that on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Uh, once paid, always, you know, once saved, always saved, the penalty was paid. And so uh, all I had to do was uh, trust that his death on the cross atoned for, on the cross atoned for my sin and that I would be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise till the day of redemption. And uh, so I asked for that free gift of salvation and got it. 
And I know that sounds crazy, maybe that I understood all of that when I was five, but I, I pretty well did. And um, that was the majority of my life. Uh, I was very much into intrinsic religiosity, right? I think I'm using that correctly, but uh, you know, it wasn't that religion was something that was sort of attached to me or alongside my life, but it was everything about my life. So, <clears throat> you know, as a as a teenager. Uh, driving to work. Um, like I would remember, remember praying, Oh Lord, let me get a parking spot, you know, and then a parking spot appears. Oh, thank you Lord for providing that parking spot. Or I didn't want to speed even though I was late. And I said, I, Lord, I trust you. You don't want me to speed. I'll get there on time if you want me to. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very much into uh, studying the biblical text. Of course, I, I grew up in church and uh, I went to youth group all the time and on missions trips. I was sort of your stereotypical evangelical Christian. And um, at 17, I joined the Air Force and immediately started, when I got to my first duty station, started teaching a Bible study, uh, which was so dorky, but I did it. And uh, I eventually, while I was on active duty, got my bachelor's degree in religion from Liberty University, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a very fundamentalist evangelical uh, university here in the U.S. And uh, I then applied to a an officer chaplain program in the Air Force and got commissioned as an officer and started seminary. And... Uh, went through six years of full-time seminary, got a master's in theology uh, in Old Testament studies. At the same time, I was pastoring a church out in Virginia uh, as an associate pastor. And again, all of these were very much fundamentalist um, you know, interpretations of the text. And um, when, I, when I was about to finish, I was, I was pretty good with the languages. Um, the biblical languages. And I had a professor tell me it would be a waste if you didn't go get a PhD and try to get it in Hebrew or Old Testament or something, you know, like that. And so I applied to um, the program at Johns Hopkins University. They have what's called an Assyriology program. And uh, uh, where I minored in Hebrew Bible as well, because I had an extensive background in it. And when I got in, uh, very quickly, I was confronted in a way that I had never been confronted before with um, the wider languages and cultures of the ancient Near East, including their mythologies. And at the same time, I was learning Akkadian, I was learning Sumerian, so I was able to read these these texts that sort of stand behind uh, the biblical texts. And, you know, it, that, then at the same time, learning the historical, you know, time, that, that the historical information about the ancient Near East and the Levant and realizing over and over again that it, it just doesn't in so many ways, particularly early on, match up with the, the Old Testament. And so about halfway through my first semester at Johns Hopkins, uh, I became an atheist. I remember which class it was. It was the class on the Philistines. And, uh, you know, we know when the Philistines got to Canaan, 
and it's not when the Bible says they did. Um, and I just remember that was the thing that sort of drove me to take a big step back and to look at all of the data objectively or more objectively than I had been and to determine, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true, but it sure doesn't seem like it is. And uh, so I became an atheist. And then after a couple of years, I uh, sort of settled into like an agnostic position. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the, that's the yeah. flow. That's how it went. <clears throat> that's incredible. So was it like a, was it like the straw that broke the camel's back or, or was it like, because I can't imagine you'd be like, you know, an on fire Christian, you know, you're praying, praying as you drove into university that day and that one class happened and you're like, well, now I'm an atheist. Like was the story. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so it was, I guess, a bit of both, right? Um, the, the process for the straw that broke the camel's back was not long. Um, so the, the story that I like to tell is um, I taught biblical Hebrew and exegetical principles using Hebrew for the, the the last two years that I was in seminary. I was an adjunct professor there. And I remember I got accepted to Hopkins, which was a huge deal. And the Dean of students um, for the seminary on my last day of teaching Hebrew, I was walking out with my big stack of books and uh, he said, well, are you ready? Cause you know, Johns Hopkins is a pretty liberal university. And uh, I, I held up my Hebrew Bible in my hand and because uh, that's what I had with me. And I said, you know, I, I'm going into the lion's den, but I'm going to win souls for Christ. And um, I remember when I started at Hopkins, that, that was definitely the mentality that I had going in. Yeah. And I remember like the first week, um, there was a bit of a lag in some of the Assyriology classes that they were offering. And so I ended up taking a bunch of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament uh, courses instead, sort of filling in the gaps with those. Um, and so I was, you know, very close to all the Hebrew Bible students that were in the department. And one of them in particular, a good friend of mine named Andrew, he was in his third year at the time. And, you know, we got to talking and he learned my background and he said, oh, this will be very interesting. <laughs> and I said, what will? And he said, well, it'd be interesting to see how long you last. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, somebody with your background, your interpretation of the text, this isn't going to last very long for you. And I said, oh, you yeah, wrong guy. Uh, you know, you don't you, you, you don't know me. Um, <laughs> and I, every week it probably took six weeks, um, total. And, uh, you know, every week I'd come into class and before class would start, he'd turn around, he'd look at me and say, how you doing? <laughs> and I'd say, it's okay. It's okay. You know, because if you get it a little bit at the time, you can sort of, you yeah. can do apologetics, right? Um, yeah. You can sort of, well, isn't it possible that? Um, but the way that it was happening for me was every week, every week, it was several things that were new and mm -hmm. several things that were problematic. And then finally, that one class, 
it was just something that was so stark. It was so in your face that it was like, all right, that's it. I just, I can't, I can't hold it anymore. Um, so relatively speaking, it was pretty quick. Um, but it does feel like over this, a lot happened in that 45 minute period of time during that Mm. class. Uh, so I guess it was a little bit of both, but it's actually interesting because I wonder, like, I haven't studied, I, I've, I've done a cert for in ministry college, in ministry. It was, you know, very, very, very ministry-esque. Um, but I wonder, like, when it comes to academic scholarship, things like that, and, and studying the Bible and, and stuff, I, I wonder how, like, how, why is it so different from, like, a liberal university versus the studies you've done prior? Like, why, like, surely they have the same text, the same information. How is it approached differently? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there are some sort of key, um, I don't know, principles that are held on to in evangelicalism. One of them is the inerrancy of the text. That's a huge thing, right? The Bible is inspired and it is inerrant. Now there's debate about how we define inerrancy and what counts as inerrant and all these things. But, you know, the reality is once you, once you connect together, and this is just in my experience, but once you connect together, this book is inspired by God and it is in some way inerrant. You have commitments and you have commitments that they're not so easy to shake and still hang on to them. So there, there are, you know, ways uh, that people can, you know, sort of deal with problematic passages, particularly in the Old Testament. So, um, and still try to maintain some form of inerrancy. But the reality is that that position is very, very strong in fundamentalism. And so you'll have like verbal plenary inspiration down to like the grammatical forms that are used in the original autographs, uh, whatever that means, the original autographs. Uh, but um, when you when you have that level of commitment, now it's like, well, and and oftentimes in fundamentalist interpretations, they don't respect genre maybe as much as they should, or let me say it this way. They don't respect genre sometimes as much as maybe more slightly more liberal evangelicals would like. Um, and so what ends up happening is just, well, it says here that God created in six days. And so God created in six days. And it says that, you know, Methuselah lived, you know, what, 969 years. And so here it is, 969 years. And you can sort of do the calculations, right? And mm. and figure out the age of the earth. And, um, of course, more mainstream evangelicals will tell you things like, no, you have to, you have to read this, you know, in its ancient Near Eastern context. And I agree. Oh, the word context. That, yeah. That was, yeah. And that's true, so right? The problem that, and we can talk about this, you know, as we go through, but I mean, the problem with context is it becomes sort of a, a catch all, like a get out of jail free card, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you just, you know, you, you read a really problematic passage about slavery and well, you just have to understand the broader context 
Yeah, yeah well, help on. me. Help me understand the broader context, <laughs> yeah. my guy. Um, yeah. That's so, a, it's funny, funny mention that example because that's exactly what, like, I understand. You've, you definitely need to understand all this in context, and that's why I love your book so much is because I think you do, you do a, a very honest portrayal of like I've, I've, I've only started the um atheist guide to the old testament but which is amazing by the way i'm lo- loving it more than the um slavery one but the slavery book I, I read it for the second time um in preparation for this interview and it's it's so balanced like it's so in the middle of the road you 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 say atheists get things wrong here um you know christians fundamentalists get things wrong here this mm. is what the scholars tend to tend yeah. to say and i, I really appreciate that and so i started making like tiktoks or random videos about slavery um and uh and, and everyone would say that you just don't understand the context and I, and I would just reply can you tell me the context yeah and then ghosts like i just disappeared I, yeah. I wouldn't hear from them again and this is yeah. multiple people like yeah 10 15 people and i'm like what what do you mean like, what's the context if you don't if i don't know the context tell me or they'll say they'll even say um you don't know the context and i say well can you tell me the context and one lady got back and said it's better you go read the context yourself and i said i have like what do you mean <laughs> i'm i've i've become sort of a terrible human being on tiktok <laughs> so i i started this at the at the request of uh a couple of people i started a tiktok account or channel or something called not kent hovind and i and am the biggest fan of that my wife is sick of me singing the <laughs> rap like <laughs> well my name is kent hovind coming back in t-rex <laughs> yeah i lost it like that's amazing i i, I oh i need to put out more content i just i have to think of things to say and it's tough to do uh you just need to do those little ma- like, mm, yes. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, I, well, let me tell you, David. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So, <laughs> um, oh, whack you, set you straight. <laughs> it's so good, it's so good. <laughs> but I, I take that account now. Like when I go on and, and scroll through, I'll scroll through the lives that are going on, and uh, I'll get Bible studies. And so here I am. I'm not. I'm not Joshua Bowen, you know, I'm not like Digital Hammurabi. I'm this goofy account, not Kent Hovind, right? So there's some anonymity. And so I'll go in there and and they'll be, you know, talking about, oh, God is, you know, you just, you, the God of the Old Testament is so amazing. And I'll say, yeah, so why do you think that he endorsed slavery in the laws of the Old Testament? And that's the number one thing you hear, right? Oh, you don't understand the context. And I'll say, oh, well, could we read it out loud right now? Block. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, and so, I can see from their perspective they they would just assume you're a troll or something, right? Um, Which I but, guess I am, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. But it's it's just amazing that like it's it's hard to have these conversations. Like you you can't ask them for context about slavery or genocide and not yeah. appear like a troll. Like it's so. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you go like, hey, yeah. can we can we talk about God's genocide stuff? Like. <laughs> <laughs> and it just—it always comes across like you're trying to pick a fight, and you, right, <laughs> right, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, th- that's a—it's an amazing, yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, how did you handle with uh, handle emotionally, kind of having such a shift in your, uh, I guess, identity? Um, Very difficult, um, and almost ironically, uh, I have a friend named Mark. And Mark and I went to seminary together uh, just outside of D.C. 
and we were best friends. Uh, like we learned Hebrew together. Uh, we used to lock ourselves in a room with uh, a Hebrew grammar and a Hebrew dictionary, Hebrew English dictionary. And we would say no English for the next three hours. And we would just speak Hebrew to each other. We were so dorky. Wow. Um, but, you know, it, it really helped, um, obviously, to, to sort of immerse yourself that way. But that's how close we were. And um, I have, I was telling you earlier, like I have multiple sclerosis and it does some wonderful things to my brain chemistry and my neurology that I don't understand completely. Um, but one of the things that I get uh, is massive amounts of anxiety. And I, I was married at the time I was going to um, Hopkins and we lived out in Virginia. And so I was driving an hour and 45 minutes uh, into the campus and then renting out this little apartment on um, North Howard Street uh, so that I could be on campus you know, five days a week and then drive back home on the weekends. And, uh, it was very, it's very difficult for me to particularly by myself to live in the city. It just, it, it, it was, it was anxiety inducing for me. And, um, he would come up every Thursday, every Thursday evening. It was my last class for the week. Um, and he would pick me up in his car and we'd drive out to Uno's pizza and we'd get a pizza and we'd just talk. And pretty quickly it became clear that I was, you know, sliding away from the faith. And of course he was not. And so we were we would have these really candid conversations. We'd walk around a parking lot at night or we'd walk walk around this place called Ellicott City, get a coffee and just just talk and talk things through. And um and so ironically, that was actually really helpful for me because it was a he was a sounding board for me to sort of uh, transition and, and walk through why it is that I have these problems and to listen to him honestly, without a lot of judgment. Um, And it was just, it was actually really useful and really nice. Um, So, but you know, my family is all still very fundamentalist evangelical um, and I love them to death and they love me, but it doesn't mean I don't hear about it or, you know, get prayed for all the time and get told that I get prayed for all the time. Um, I've been called some, by certain members of my family, I've been called some pretty rough things. Uh, I We put out a video, a, a recent research series is what we called it. And there was a, there was a professor up at Harvard named Don Dershowitz who wrote an article in 2017 about homosexuality in the book of Leviticus. And it's a complicated argument, but he's making the argument that uh, originally, that passage in Leviticus 18 wasn't about same-sex uh, relationships, but was about incest and implicitly condoned same-sex uh, relationships. Um, and so I did this short little video, popular-level video, and uh, is basically saying, look, it looks like Leviticus may have originally condoned uh, same-sex couplings. Ooh, that's a spice. That's going to get the fundamentalist mad. Yeah. And I won't mention who, but someone in my family who I love dearly, very, very close to me, called me a pervert. Um, and it was just, 
it was just really, really rough. Um, so those sorts of things, uh, you know, those, those sorts of things are, they still exist. Um, but it's getting better. It's getting better. Um, I, 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 I guess I am open about these things. I'm currently in therapy, uh, with a religious trauma specialist. That's what he specializes in to sort of, you know, keep working through these, uh, you know, fears about hell, right? Because if anybody's grown up in fundamentalist evangelicalism, hell is a, a very real threat, right? And it's often what drives you to the faith and keeps you there. Um, and I have some very deeply incised ruts in my brain uh, where I can know the ancient Near East. I'm presenting a, a paper at a conference uh, here in July on the background to death and the afterlife in the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible. So it's not like I don't know about where hell came from and where it developed and all those things, um, the idea of it. But that doesn't mean that at night I don't sometimes lie lie down and say, and what if this is just the wisdom of this world? What if mm. this is just man's wisdom? What if I am being blinded by Satan and this is just all part of it, right? And it's um, it's a very real thing. So I'm I'm working with a professional to sort of um, work through some of those things. So mm. I, I often say um, for myself that you know there, there was a stage in my life where um, you know you know, people were asking, would you do this for God? Would you do that for God? Would you do this for God? And I, I said, listen, I'd, I would do anything for God. Like, um, I, I would die for God. I, I would, mm -hmm. I would, you know, do absolutely anything. Like nothing was off limits. Um, if I knew it was God telling me to do something, I'd do something. And, uh, yeah. and it, it, it was such a hard shift, but for me, I've, I've had, got a little bit of I don't know if you call it religious trauma, but I was definitely affected by, um, um, uh, you know, church's purity culture or Christianity's mm -hmm. purity culture. And for the first, <clears throat> like my wife and I were Christians up until we were married and a bit further past that. And uh, the first time we slept together was on our wedding night. Um, mm. We, um, um, uh, you know, and for the, and, you know, like having sex was fun and everything, but for the first like few years, I would have intense anxiety before we had sex yep. and after, after and sex about nine out of 10 times, like I yep. would, I would just feel, I'd feel bad or wrong or yeah. guilty yep. or I, I couldn't understand why I was anxious, but I was just anxious. Yeah. It was so, it was such a horrible way to start a marriage and start yes. that level of intimacy because yeah, it was just, and all I can put it down to is, um, is the purity culture in church and especially that, that book, um, Every man's battle and the see that mm -hmm. whole series that that series I taught I that series when I was a pastor. So did I. So yeah. did I. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Gosh, and it's so like there was. I remember watching the DVD series um of Every Man's Battle, and it was like this one. You know, it was like um, you know, they're interviewing Ted Bundy, and he's like, you know what, all the serial killers here they watch porn, and then it's all like, this is, <laughs> that's the connection. One, yeah, or there's this one, uh, this one guy, and he's like, um, he uh, he watched. So, he was a teenager, and he watched so much porn that he found that he was turned gay, and um, <laughs> and 
and like and i was like whoa and and like i remember talking to my secular friends and i was saying things like like why you got so much anxiety around like sex and porn and stuff like this is when i was a teenager yeah and um and i was like i just don't and i used to make a joke and i was like i just don't want to end up behind a um a bar giving some dude a blowjob and he's like what like he's his mind's like where do you get this yeah. connection from and i look yes. back i'm like because of all this like that's fair yeah yep. you, eventually you just won't be able to control yourself when you'll be sleeping with dogs and and, yes. and, and homosexual like it's it's disgusting yeah yeah, yeah. obviously the uh bourbon has taken effect i've started to rant a little bit but um <laughs> that's good <laughs> good good um well, your story, that's an amazing story, but I, I did actually want to touch on um, an, an ac- academic overview of seriology. But before we do that, um, I noticed you have a little plaque behind you. Um, behind that, And what is that? This guy? Yeah. So this is a painting of uh, what's called the Mushkushu dragon. Um, and it, it's an Akkadian word, but it comes from a Sumerian word like the fierce dragon. Um, and uh, it's on the Ishtar gate. Uh, so this is the, the original painting, uh, but this is one of the figures that's on the Ishtar gate in Nebuchadnezzar II's um, uh, palace, yeah, the gate. Um, you can see it online if, if, if people Google it. But uh, this particular painting was done by Christina Blackfeather, who's a fan of ours. And she painted it live on her channel. And it took several, I mean, it's pretty big. I, let me back up so you can get some perspective. So I'm yeah. six two. Oh, whoa. Yeah. yeah okay. It's, it's, it's That's pretty big. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, she painted it live and then, sent it to us for free along with one of two prints that she made. And uh, Megan runs a nonprofit organization called Humans Against Poor Scholarship, which gives scholarships to PhD students to get through the summer uh, when they don't get funding. And she said, I'd like to, I'd like you to keep the original painting and sell one of the prints and whatever money you make from it, you know, have that be my donation to, the HAPS, the Humans Against Poor Scholarship program. And uh, this is incredibly generous and it's just absolutely beautiful. So we put it right here in the background. So every video that we do, people yeah. get to see her work. Well, it's, um, I, I, I wasn't sure if it had anything to do with this, but I'm going to share my screen. Uh, my wife and I, part of, um, actually, was I think it was part of what opened our eyes to the broader picture of other religions and stuff. We went on a world trip, ended mm-hmm. up in Berlin, ended up in a museum, and we ended up in front of mm-hmm. this. Is That's that, it. That's it. Wow. So I have no, we have no idea what this is. We're just standing in front of it like, wow, this is an important thing. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I yep, don't know if it's that's the it. original or all the way over in Berlin. Um, yeah, I, 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 I've I've not been to that museum, but I think I think that is the original. Yeah, I think because it was an, an a um like a museum for Middle Eastern kind of mm-hmm. things. Yeah, but yeah, it's it looked it looks so similar when I first saw yep, the channel. That's what like, it is. Oh, that must be. It's exactly <laughs> that's what it so is. Cool. Yep. That's so and then, cool. as you, yeah, like there are different different animals. Um, yeah, but 
look at the absolute ignorance of what I'm standing in front of. Like, I, not, <laughs> like, I wish I could go back now and um and uh, and educate and some people. Know. Like, yeah. you don't even you probably don't even know what this is. You do don't you? even know what this is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you even lift, bro? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you even scholar? Um, <laughs> um, so I'd love for you to explain to the audience what is the seriology. Um, yeah, so maybe to sort of, uh, like very briefly, it is the study of the languages and cultures of ancient Iraq and Syria for the most part. Um, and they're our oldest civilizations, right? Uh, they are, yeah, I mean, it depends on how you're defining civilization, I guess, but it's, it's the oldest writing comes from Mesopotamia. Okay. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, first cities, those sorts of things. Um, so, uh, the, the, the period of time that we study is pretty broad. It, you know, runs from roughly 3000 BCE down to the, you know, the, um, time of Alexander the Great, you know, down around 330, <clears throat> um, but it's throughout that that entire area, and it's broader than that, right? Because um, a seriologist can, you know, study uh, areas up in Turkey, uh, but it's it's you know, or over in Iran. But it's that whole area there of Iraq and Syria and the and the regions, you know, immediately adjacent to it. Um, which means that most Assyriologists will study Akkadian the languages of Akkadian and Sumerian and the texts that are written uh, in those languages. Um, so it's, it, the name comes from ancient Assyria, uh, which was, you know, over in Mesopotamia, uh, which is Mesopotamia means the land between the two rivers. So the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, if you can picture Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. the head of the Persian Gulf, and then those two rivers that kind of split and go up. I frantically, um, just so you know, I frantically started Googling my history because I, I knew nothing about Assyriology, Mesopotamia, nothing, nothing. Um, I've, I've always been really bad at history. And last night, I'm like frantically like, all right, the, the Freddy well, River. And- if, if people are interested, um, chapter two of the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament is uh, it's a history of the ancient Near East focusing on Mesopotamia or from the Mesopotamian perspective. Um, And then book two, volume two, which is getting ready to come out here in a couple of months. uh, I give the history of the ancient Near East from the Egyptian perspective. So focusing in on Egyptian history and then book three, which will be the final book in the series. um, We'll give it from the Levantine, like the Syro-Palestinian um, perspective. So ancient Israel, their perspective. So, uh, should be, should be good. Uh, I think. I hope. Uh, well, for, so I'm I'm up to that chapter, and it's been an amazing book so far. And obviously, links are in the description for all your work. The audiobook's great for the for slave the slavery book and the um uh the old, the atheist guide to the Old Testament. And it's not just atheists either, because yeah. I get the it's. Because what I find a lot with Christian texts is they they layer it with so much theology that you mm-hmm. don't get a lot of the history. Like so, it's like 
you know, it seems sometimes like 50% theology, 50% history, and you don't know what if the history has been twisted to yeah. kind of match the theology. Where what I love about this book is Christians could read it and just get a very, very entertaining and simple overview of very complex issues about the Old yeah. Testament. Mm. One of the things that, you know, we all have biases. There's no question about that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, nobody, nobody in academia that I know, Christian or atheist or whatever, would say that they don't have biases. I mean, we, you can't get away from biases. Um, the, the struggle is to sort of fight against them, right? And one of the problems with apologetics, Christian apologetics in particular, um, but of course in any other apologetic field, is that you can't be strictly as, un like you can't try to be as unbiased as possible. There's only a certain amount of unbiased that you can be because there are fundamental things that you have to hold to, right? Because mm -hmm. you're starting in, in a lot of ways, you're starting with a conclusion yeah. and you're having to hold to that. Even if that conclusion is this is the inspired word of God. If that's the case, you already have serious commitments. Um, and so what I, I, I realized that this was definitely a marketing strategy, calling it the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament. Um, it is, it's definitely marketed and geared toward atheists and skeptics because the way that the books are, are written, they're saying, look, if you're having discussions with family members, with people online, uh, if people at work, that are saying things like the Bible is, um, you know, like the Old Testament is so different than any of the other stuff that we see in the ancient Near East. And all the peoples in the ancient Near East were really barbaric, but, you know, the, peop the, the Bible is really progressive. And, um, you know, actually slavery is not slavery. And uh, violence, you know, that was totally justified when God annihilated entire uh, ethnic groups, that was okay because they were really sinful. Um, if you're having those discussions, that's who the book is for. The book is for you to be, to, to get a broad, um, somewhat deep uh, introduction to the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible, but then to uh, be armed with information about these specific topics like slavery, like who wrote the Pentateuch, like the prophecy against the city of Tyre that failed in Ezekiel, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, but the reality, fail, Josh. No, definitely because, not. Because, of course. Because prophecies can't fail. So therefore that's right. Fail. They can't. I mean, that's how it works, right? Um, yeah. But for me, the point I guess I was, I'm trying to drive at incredibly slowly, and I apologize for that, is... Um, while I have biases, biases that uh, are, are often brought about just by my life experience, where I'm from, you know, the fact that I'm uh, a white male in, you know, the 20, uh, in uh, 2000 or 2022, uh, I have biases that I'm, uh, some that I'm aware of, some that I'm not aware of. But I, I don't compound that with some of these other, I think, incredibly much more problematic biases. Uh, and so when I write this book, I can say things like, atheists get this wrong. 
right? And Christian apologists get this wrong. Look, here's, these are the data points. This is what we're all looking at. This is what we're all working with. Here are the models. None of them say Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? Uh, outside of fundamentalist evangelicalism or, you know, the types of evangelicalism, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. Oh, you just, you kind of just answered one of the questions for the Q and a, but, uh, sorry, sorry. That, no, that's good. That's good. We can touch on it again. So how does it relate to biblical, how does the seriology relate to biblical studies? Yeah. Um, big sip of bourbon. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's, that's a tough one. Um, so, uh, you know, the earliest um, the earliest attestation that we have for Israel in uh, in history comes from 1207 BCE, and there's a a stele called the Merneptah stele, and it's Pharaoh Merneptah is doing a campaign into Canaan, and he says, "I conquered and wiped out this people group called Israel." So that's the earliest that we got. We don't really have anything until like, what, the ninth century, tenth century, um, but several, you know, several uh, hundred years later, and the so so Israel is part of uh, a cultural tapestry that goes way back earlier than uh, Israel's history. So, you know, if you think about, if you, if you picture a map uh, of the ancient Near East, you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here, and I guess it would be for you to be over here. Can't tell how this mirrors. But, uh, you know, on one side you have the Mediterranean and Israel over here, and then on the other side you have the head of the Persian Gulf and you have Mesopotamia here. Um, this whole area has such a rich history. Uh, and... You know, writing appears at the end of the fourth millennium in Mesopotamia. We start getting like economic and administrative texts. And then pretty soon into the third millennium, you're getting mythological texts. You're getting, um, you know, it just, it really get literature and it, it really uh, develops. And then by the time you get to the early second millennium, you just have this explosion of Sumerian and Akkadian literature. And we're still... 800 years before, 700 years before the first mention of Israel. And so, you know, Israel, the Israelites were Canaanites you know, from the land of Canaan. Um, and they, they developed out of the mythology, uh, part of, you know, you can see it in the Hebrew Bible, very, uh, you know, it, it's, it, oh, there's a lot of background, Canaanite background. Um, and so you also have an awful lot of influence um, on the Hebrew Bible from Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamian literature, Akkadian literature, like the flood story is the, the, a great example. If you read through the Akkadian story of Atrahasis, um from the first half of the second millennium BCE, uh, and you compare that to the Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 11, which is from you know maybe 500 years later, um, that story, those versions of that, of the flood story are what, like, it's what the Hebrew Bible writers with the scribes used. 
Um, and I have a chapter on that in, in volume two uh, of the Atheist Handbook. And so, and it's more than just the literature, right? If you read through Exodus 21, for example, in the co- part of the covenant code, you'll see striking resemblances to the to the laws of Hammurabi, right? So even the way they um, s- organize and, and, and think about uh, things like case law, if you ever read through, you know, uh, Exodus or Deuteronomy, if such and such happens, then such and such will happen as a result. These if then they call this casuistic law. Well, this is this this comes from Mesopotamia. Um, so the the reason that there's such a strong connection here and it's so useful and so relevant to studying the Hebrew Bible is that the Hebrew Bible it was not handed down from on high in a vacuum, right? It's pulling from, it's utilizing, it's reworking and reshaping literary and mythological traditions. Uh, and and cultural traditions, um, and 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 even like legal rationale that have been, that had been in the area for thousands of years, and so understanding all of that background, then coming to the Hebrew Bible, it sets it all in its context, and it sets it so so you can sit down and you can read, for example, when you when you read through the conquest narrative of the Book of Joshua, and you see these. Uh, what scholars have pointed out are probably hyperbolic statements, right? About wiping absolutely everybody out. Well, if you read through Sennacherib's uh, inscriptions about what he does, the Neo Assyrian king, you see that he says similar stuff, right? Um, it's a it's a way that they speak. Now that gets abused, tremendously abused. I write about it in the second book. I have a chapter on violence and genocide um, in the Old Testament. But the point is that you can understand genre you can understand um where they're getting individual themes or motifs from and that helps you understand uh what the text itself is doing and i'll I'll give one very brief example that i develop a lot in the book if you read through genesis 1 through 11 which is called the primeval history there's a progression and if you think about it, particularly starting in the, in the in the Eden narrative, mankind is created very much in line with the animals, right? There's a there's a close connection between man and the animals, right? And the, the man is created, and then the animals are created, and they're brought before him to see who's going to be a helper, and no helper is found. Um, but then woman is created, and the man and the woman are naked; they're unashamed. Uh, this is very much akin to what you see in the Epic of Gilgamesh with the character of Enkidu. Enkidu is this wild man who's unclothed. He's out roaming, you know, in the steppe. Um, the progression in the Epic of Gilgamesh, though, is toward civilization, right? Enkidu uh, becomes, you know, has sex with a woman for seven days and becomes human, becomes civilized. He puts on clothing. He eats bread. He drinks beer. Then he goes to the major city of Uruk and he meets, you know, Gilgamesh and, and everything is all about moving toward the pinnacle of civilization, which is the city, right? That's the, everything moves toward the city and it's all positive movement toward the city. It's like, this is what we should be striving for. Well, if you understand that 
and then go read Genesis 1 through 11, you have movement, similar movement, from innocence, you know, nakedness, um, toward Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel story, toward the city, and notice it's Babylon, the Tower of Babylon, the city of Babylon. Um, but that movement is all negative, right? Think about the, the movement toward, uh, you know, the, the people following Cain and Abel, right? They get more civilized. They're building cities, but it's all bad, right? They all fall into sin. Everybody's wicked. Then God Yahweh starts over with Noah and, and his sons. And what do they immediately say? It's, it starts moving again towards civilization, towards civilization. And ultimately it coalesces, it, it, it climaxes in this city and tower of Babel, um, which is the, the, the worst thing possible. And what does Yahweh do? Right. They all come together. They want to build a tower up to heaven. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a smack in the face to this ideal that the Mesopotamians had of the city and civilization. And what does he do? He scatters them. And who does he pick? He picks Abram, pulls him from where? Out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of Mesopotamia, pulls him out with his family. And what do they do the rest of his life? They wander around. They wander around in tents, right? It's 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 a polemic. It's a direct polemic against Mesopotamian concepts of ideal civilization. Wow. And so, if you can understand that, if you can, you know, if 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 we can get a and again, I write about this in more detail in the book. But if you can, if we can sort of wrap our heads around that, then it becomes clear this isn't a matter of plagiarism, right? It's not that the Old Testament writers, it's not that the Judean scribes are going, okay, I'm lifting this story because they didn't have a concept of plagiarism. There's no moral mm. component to this. There aren't like intellectual ideas that are owned by people. Um, rather what they're doing is the example that I always give is they're acting like Eminem, right? If you listen to one of Eminem's albums, uh, more recent albums, he, he reworks so many different artists. The song that always pops to mind is a uh, uh, remind me. It's the example that I always give um, but it's a reworking of Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll. And you can hear how he reworks it. The, the, the music itself is a replay of it, a reworking of it, and some of the ideas. It's not that he's plagiarizing, right? He's pulling it for a very specific effect. And that's how we have to think about this. We have to think about what are they doing? Why is it that Genesis 1 sounds so goddamn similar to the Enuma Elish? right, to the, the ascendancy of Marduk. Why are there hints all over the place that it, it's it's like it, right? It's pulling from it. It's because it's a polemic, right? It's 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 trying to say, we, we know what you guys think. Yahweh did it, not Marduk. Yahweh's better, not Marduk. And here's how we're showing that. Um, okay, so you've blown my mind. You've, you've blown my mind. <laughs> None of those are my ideas, by the way, just so it's no, clear. Yeah, there's a, there's a great article by Ron Hendel that talks about that progression. He's one of the scholars that's written on that. But that, uh, That's amazing. That, that like, everything clicks a lot more. more. I, I did actually want to push back um, on, like, I'm trying to I'm, I flick back into my fundamentalist mind for a second to try and think about how someone may... Um, mm-hmm try and push back on what you're saying sure i've heard or maybe so we know historically that 
I mean, it's a whole other thing to say, did the Exodus happen and all that stuff? But we know historically when these books were written differs from the theological ideas of when these things happened, right? So, like, um, it might say the Exodus happened, you know, like your Bible, it might say the Exodus happened probably 2000 BC or something. I don't know what the actual dates are, 1500 BC. I 15th, yeah, 15th century. Yeah. Um, and so that's what the theological claim is. I know that there are some problems historically with sure. the Exodus, um, you know, were they ever in Egypt? We can get into that at another, another point. But for a, th- for a theologian, couldn't a theologian say that, no, 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 these were oral traditions that the Mesopotamians um, started writing down, got a little, some few things wrong, but God kept the oral tradition alive in what would become the Israelites um, and then they, when they did write it down, they wrote down it down the way God first intended. And so it was like the cup for the horse kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually what goes along with that is, uh, well, th- th- there was an actual worldwide flood, right? That's sort of, uh, that's sort of the linchpin to that. That's why it's, it, it goes that way. Um, and so the problem that you have to wrestle with the her. There are many, but just in the field of humanities, the problems that you have to wrestle with. Uh, if you're going by that, you know, more fundamentalist biblical approach, the flood's supposed to happen sometime in the middle of the third millennium, right? We know a lot about the middle of the third millennium. We have a lot of original, like extant cuneiform clay tablets from yeah. that period. Uh, it's it, it it you can like go to an archaeological site and dig down into the early Bronze Age, like, d- down into the third mm-hmm. millennium. Um, and we have like we we know what's going on; it's not a mystery. Um, so that's one thing that you have to contend with. Probably the bigger problem, I think. I mean. <laughs> Besides the fact that you have to have Sargon of Akkad establish the Akkadian Empire, the old Akkadian Empire, 20 years after all of humanity has been wiped out. Hmm. I mean, other than that. um, Uh, And you're not talking about the uh, YouTube Twitch uh, uh, person who um, time travels back in time. You're not talking about Sargon (laughs) of Akkad, the uh, Twitch. No, not that guy. Not that guy. Uh, the, the, The original. Um, yeah, but the other thing that you have to wrestle with, just thinking more about a textual, the textual tradition, is that we actually don't see flood stories, Mesopotamian flood stories, appearing until right around two thousand. In other words, it's not that there's been this tradition that's been carried on since the middle of the third millennium, and because we have writing, we have mythologies. We have stories, literature put down. Nothing is said. In fact, we have what's called the Sumerian King List. And the Sumerian King List is a a late third millennium. Uh, It was probably written sometime in the late third millennium. But there's an earlier version of it that doesn't have the flood story. Later, there's a line that says after the flood swept over, right? So it's it's appended or it's, it's added to the Sumerian King List. But those traditions don't start. They don't, we don't see them in the literary record. Um, or in the textual record until just after 2000 BCE. So what you'd have to argue is that not only do we not see it anywhere in Canaan um, until well into the first millennium, 
right? Uh, and that there's just some oral tradition, but that the Mesopotamians, who were also at the center of this and have the exact same goddamn story, um, down to individual vocabulary words, by the way, um, they just went 500 years without saying anything about it. Their entire civilization was destroyed, even though we have no record of that. We have lots of record of the civilization continuing right on through. Mm. Um, but they they just, they saw this global flood, this worldwide flood, and went, oh, hum, let's hold off in talking about that for half a millennium. Right. It just, it's, it's you know, to say that it strains credulity is uh, very generous, I think. It's it's also one of those things where like the flood is such a fun thing to talk to fundamentalists with because it's so obviously like I went through I live in Australia I went through and counted mm-hmm. all the endemic species that we have in Australia like things that not including birds or fish because they could fly and swim to from Mount Ararat all the way to Australia um, nineteen thousand six hundred and one might have been <laughs> the endemic species we have in Australia so and I actually I have two friends who work for um, uh, who have worked and work for the Wildlife Hospital, Steve Irwin's um, mm-hmm. Zoo's hospital that's just down the road. And um, and I, they've, they've given me tours of the koala enclosures and stuff. And they're like, look, they're like, koala, koalas can't get the specific type of eucalyptus leaves that they like, that they want. They will choose to die in the tree rather than eat a type of eucalyptus leaf they, they, they Good night. want. And so, like, they're so dumb, like, as written regarding to a species. It's amazing that they've survived this long. And they'll all their brain power has gone to u- taking the nutrients from, I mean, I'm not a biologist or whatever, but I, that's what I've heard. And even, like, at different stages in their life, they'll eat the shoots, they'll eat older leaves. If they're feeling sick, they'll eat, um, you know, different species of leaves and they'll eat it further up the tree. Um, and I've heard apologists say, maybe with koalas, they had other foliage and they sprayed eucalyptus oil that they, that Noah had made that wasn't written down. <laughs> and I'm like, at what stage, you know, or I remember, the, I remember mentioning it to a, um, uh, a, f- a family member, um, uh, mentioning this to a family member. And I said, um, you know, what about the problem with um, Noah's flood and something? They said, well, maybe God just created the animals after, like maybe he just repopulated the earth with the animals. And I said, well, what's the point of the ark? Right. I was like, and, and also, you're just making stuff up now. Like, you're yes. just not mentioned anywhere. So, yeah, it's always a fun fun topic to talk about because it's like, it. it I mean, I don't mean to be crude to, to anyone who may believe this, but it fails on every single yeah. level if you take it literally. Um, and this is, this is what's sort of frustrating to me. Um, I was watching a Twitter thread with uh, someone who was making a, I guess, an abductive argument. I'm not a philosopher. But somebody who was making an abductive argument about morality in the Old Testament, and somebody was arguing against them, critiquing their abductive argument like a deductive argument. And of course, in a deductive argument, I say, of course, like, how do I know about philosophy? <laughs> I'm but kind of following along. <laughs> it's like, it's so, so <laughs> abductive is um, uh, like the evidence leads to the most reasonable conclusion or something like that. It's like, there's a, there's another way to say it, but it's, it's not a uh, premise one premise two. Therefore it necessarily follows premise three. Mm-hmm. That's deductive. Um, uh, 
argument to the best explanation, I think is what it's called. Um, but they were saying, well, it's not impossible that X could be true. Therefore, I win. Which, if uh, which, if you're you're saying that this is my deductive proof that this is the case, and you can find a chink in the armor of one of the premises, fine. Then that proof fails. But that's not what the guy was doing. The guy was saying, "Well, you have a an immutable God in the Old Testament who's commanding mm-hmm. genocide or commanding slavery, something that we know to be immoral." Um, that seems like that God isn't real, right? Mm. Um, and or they were saying, "What well, is it?" Wrote down the wrong thing, or maybe they weren't hearing from God. Yeah, but yeah, right. Um, but this is the sort of thing with apologetics, right? It's uh, I, I I wrote a chapter in in volume one on the dating of the book of Daniel, and. You know, Daniel gets a lot of details wrong, and he gets some bigger stuff wrong, too. But one of the things that he says is that um, Belshazzar, uh, who was uh, the son of Nabonidus, the Neo-Babylonian king, was actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, which is is just not true, right? Um, And so an apologist will come back, and you, it's like clockwork. You can... If they know anything about it, they'll say, well, wait a minute, the word in Hebrew for son and father, those words can mean grandson and grandfather as well. You're like, yeah, but but he wasn't his grandson either, right? Uh, Yeah, but he could have been because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter that married Neraglisser, who was another new Babylonian king. And it's possible, right, that he had a, maybe he had another daughter that also married Nabonidus, and that would make Nebuchadnezzar his grandfather. Well, I mean, if you're like, it's possible that it's possible that it's possible, and then that's what you're standing on. Like, I don't, I, there's not a lot that I could do, right? Because it's, what you've done is you've said, I need this conclusion to be correct. All I have to do is find a possibility. And that's not it's how also it works. The, the the thing that bothers me about apologists apologetics, and not to throw shit, too much shade on the apologists, because I, I do have appreciation for some, especially uh, Michael Jones. I really like Michael Jones. I think he's as honest of an apologist as you can be. Um, but you know, I still disagree with a lot of his conclusions. But I like him. Um, Michael and I are is, pretty good friends. Oh, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a good guy. Um, he was he was on this podcast and. He, um, it was a really interesting conversation, and he also chose whiskey, which is um, interesting to be drinking whiskey with an apologist. Um, so, uh, but the whole thing, the whole field of, of um, apolo- uh, apologist, apo- apology, apologetics, what, apologetics. Sorry, um, just it's all it's just it's all post hoc. No one believes. No one arrives at their god belief from apolog- apologetics. No one goes like, hmm, well, actually, you know. Yeah. It's just trying to rationalize away the parts that don't seem to work. Like, just what are the reasons you have for belief? You know, like someone might say, "Oh, I grew up a Christian. I, I feel this um, in, in this uh, in, in tremendous um, feeling. I had these spiritual moments and things mm-hmm. like that." Like, they're the reasons you believe. If they're the reasons you believe, just tell it. Say they're the reasons you yeah. believe. The whole apologetics field, there's a place for it. There is a place for it, but it just seems like. The whole thing is post hoc, and yeah. um, you guess you said it with a lot of things, but 
Yeah, that's the problem I tend to have with a lot of these. Or like, you know, Joseph's father. Who's Joseph's father? And it's like, well, they were using Mary's bloodline. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they were using yeah. Mary's bloodline. It doesn't say they were using, it, you know. So, I mean, you can make anything up to, yeah. to fit if you believe and, the conclusions are true. You know, I guess maybe just to sort of, uh, you know, say one, one small thing about that um, to drive it home. I have that chapter on violence and genocide in volume two. And the way that I come at it without giving like too much away is uh, basically the arguments that are made from Christian apologists, uh, particularly people like Paul Copan, if you're familiar with him. And I, I, I like Paul. He's a nice guy. Like I've had discussions with him, but uh, obviously fundamentally disagree with him. Um, but the, it's very common to say, Either the people that were genocided, <laughs> the people that were slaughtered, deserved it, right? And God was really, really patient. Or it's hyperbole, right? And they not it, it wasn't that they were all wiped out. It's just like a lot of them were wiped out. I don't think that one is like, okay, that's not much better. But um, those are the two arguments, right? It, it, it's hyperbole or um, the people really deserved it. What I do in the chapter is I say, awesome. I'm going to give you some examples of Neo-Assyrian kings that do the exact same goddamn thing. Here are three Neo-Assyrian kings that have royal inscriptions that you can go look at and go look in the museum and sit there and look at them. Uh, and they say things like, Asher, my God, uh, commanded me to go and to destroy this people group because he was very gracious and extended his benevolent arm to them and they rebelled and they sinned and they were wicked. And so I had to go destroy them. Right. Uh, and then just ask the question, how are you feeling about that? You cool with, you know, Tiglath police uh, the third kicking ass and taking names, you know, because <laughs> it's God Asher. No, no, of course not. Well, why? Yeah. Right, but it's hyperbole. It's not, one, it's not the one true God. That's, right. that's well, the that's, reason why. Yeah, and, and now we're at special pleading. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the fun special pleading. Um, mm -hmm. I did want to touch on slavery and morality of the Old Testament, um, of and I, I'm, I want to be careful of your time because I don't want to keep you till midnight. Um, because I want to get through some slavery and morality stuff, and then we have we have a lot of questions from my Discord for people yeah, who sure. are interested in what you had to say. Um, but what I have done um, is um, I've gone through your Twitter over the last week or so and just pulled oh, some boy. interesting conversations you've had with <laughs> yes. people. And before we start the uh, slavery discussion, I want to read out some people's responses to you um, just for the audience's sake. Um, so first up, so, uh, I might bleep this, I might not. Austin said... The names. Austin said, slavery allowed, live, um, allowed lives to be spared. With God allowing slavery, lives were saved. Um, and freedom was also possible. An argument against um, is an argument in favor of murder. Oh um, someone said, uh, someone said, uh, you, you said, uh, do you see a problem with slave, um, you know, slavery and beating them um, in a form of discipline? And then someone said, no, I don't see a problem. What's your objection? And then you said, easy <laughs> mute. <laughs> Andrew said, um, slavery in the Old Testament was for the benefit of both the slave owner and the slave. Um, it's Michael responded by saying, uh, Michael said, 
actually slavery in the Old Testament isn't the one, um, isn't what one thinks of the word slavery today. So-called slaves had a lot of rights and are better described as some Hebrew word workers. Uh, and my favorite by far is, um, and you could, you could, we could have the whole podcast just talking about this person's uh, tweet. The sons of light said, "Atheists." They they, yeah, they made a they made a um like a atheist atheist like a this so atheist. This is what atheists say: slavery right. is wrong. Atheist also abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, fornication, etc. Are right. Wow! Like, and you said easy block. It's amazing because like. <laughs> <laughs> because like I know people like I know, I know people on both sides of the, of the uh, yes. beliefs scale when it comes to abortion. Okay, like I I understand that that issue. Some people it's an icky issue for a lot of people. But homosexuality, transgenderism, and fornication are right. Well, they're not for one. Atheism isn't claiming that they're right. <laughs> like it is just the whole thing is just amazing yeah. to, to listen to. Like, yeah. what do you, is this what you, you think slavery is the same as transgenderism? Like someone identifying with who they feel they are or fornication. Like what? I, I don't know. There is a, uh, a really good friend of mine, Jessica, who's, uh, you've probably seen her in those Twitter threads, queen of heathens. Um, oh yeah, I, I did. Yeah. She's, she <laughs> yeah. Looks, she looks great. She, she's, she's an amazing person. And she has this thing that she says to these people, uh, or she says those two brain cells competing for third. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's so perfect. Because that's what I thought when I saw that, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right, guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's brain small. Brain small. <laughs> but it just seems everyone is coming after you at the moment in regards to slavery. Yeah. Um, I wonder why that is, because it's been a while since you wrote the book. So is it, has it been like this whole time, or is it just recently? Um, yeah, I don't remember what, what brought it up. I get tagged a fair amount. Um, Scott, I can't remember Scott's last name, but he's, he goes by theoretical bullshit on, um, on Twitter. Uh, super nice guy. Um, but you know, he, he, he'll tag me in periodically or whatever it is. Link me. I don't know what it's called at me. Um, and say, you know, like, is this right? Or what do you think about this? Um, and that usually will start something. Um, or I'll put up a tweet, uh, you know, that, that that says, like, please, you know, stop with the slavery apologetics or something like that. Mm. And what people don't realize, and this is, this is why this is so insidious, um, it would be very clear to everyone if I were to say, and I, let me let me say it this way. Uh, we did a debate, Matt Dillahunty and I did a debate with Stuart and Cliff Connectly on Modern Day Debate maybe a year ago. And it was on slavery. And at one point, there was just so much of this. It wasn't as bad. You know, the people were really wicked and God was using this and then, you know, they were really poor and it wasn't an ideal and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I remember at one point saying, listen, if right now someone broke into a house, there was a family of, you know, mother, father, and three kids and, uh, killed the mother, killed the father 
and killed the two kids, but took like the the fifteen year old daughter. Uh, and they set the house on fire and burned everybody inside of it except for the fourteen year old daughter, a fifteen year old daughter, and took her captive, took her into a basement, chained her there, uh, you know, fed her terribly but kept her as a prisoner over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, would you make the argument if somebody said that was a horrible person, would you make the argument? Well, I mean, like they didn't let the 15 year old burn in the house. I mean, like it, uh, it was a mercy I mean, they, they could have just left her there, but no, they, they they took her out. And look, they gave her food, gave her shelter, right? I mean, yeah. nobody Without would do family, that. family, she would have been starving. She would have been on the streets. Yeah, she'd family. have been out on the street. What would have happened to her? Yeah, they were providing for her. No, I mean, everybody recognizes immediately, mm. like, well, it's, you know, like I'm uncomfortable having now told that story. Um, <laughs> but the mm. point is that, we don't feel that same way. Often Christian apologists don't feel that same way when they talk about things like slavery. And so what they end up saying, like full chested, well, you know, when you bring up something like Exodus 21, 20 to 21, if a man beats his male or female slave with a wooden rod and they die immediately, and then they're to be punished, they're to be probably to be killed. Um, but if the slave survives a day or two, then they're not to be punished because they're his property. And you will hear, I mean, nine times out of 10, I will hear, well, wait a minute, like they had to be able to beat them. I mean, how else were you supposed to motivate a slave? Once somebody says that, there's just this pause, because that's what happened with one of those tweets. The guy laid out what 20 to 21 means. And I said, yes, exactly. Then I hit a space and I said, please tell me that you see the problem with this. <laughs> like, no, what problem? You know, it's, it's it, the, the, the biggest problem, besides the fact that it's unbelievably disgusting, um, is that that is the same. And I write about this in that, that slavery chapter in the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament. Um. There is a very clear parallel between the legal rationale that we saw in the antebellum South and what we see in the Hebrew Bible, because the same tension is there in both places. The judges are having to balance this. Well, we have slaves. Slaves are legal. Having slaves is legal. And we don't want masters to abuse them. And we don't want them to murder them, obviously. But they're slaves and they need to be motivated and corrected. And the master has the right to do that. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is by beating them with moderate correction, moderate physical correction. So how do we balance this? this is the master's right to beat and motivate his slave within reason and keeping the slave from being abused and killed. And the way that they develop this is, well, you're allowed to have moderate physical correction. It's the same thing that you see in Exodus 21, right? If you beat a male or female slave so severely that they die immediately, well, that's murder, that's abuse. There's, there's uh, severe punishment for that. 
However, uh, if they don't die immediately, and there's some debate about whether that means they survive a day or two and then are able to get up, I tend to think the passage means they survive a day or two and then die. But if there's intervening time between when the beating took place and when the slave died or when the slave got back up, whatever, then the benefit of the doubt is given to the master that he was just doing corporal punishment, which he needs to be able to do according to the law. Hmm. And what, what scares me so much about slavery apologetics is when you're making those arguments about Exodus 21, you're making the same fucking arguments about that people made about in the antebellum South. It's the same argument. And we know what happened there. Like the, 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 there's no place maybe that's at least in, in my day-to-day life that this is the old adage of, if you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right. Um, and that's in these slavery discussions. It's just, that's why I take this so seriously because you you can't once you once you start down the path of this book gives me my morals then you end up having to defend really whatever it is that it says whatever it is that it recommends and so you end up having to say things like well Deuteronomy 22 28 to 29 if a guy you know seizes and rapes a a a, a unbetrothed virgin He's got to marry her. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, like, hey, at least she's getting cared for for the rest of her life. You're like, whoa, whoa, come on, man. Like, mm. it's it's just so problematic. Uh, there's a uh, last thing I'll say. There's a phenomenal book that was written by uh, Professor John Collins up at Yale, who is just a hell of a nice guy and a brilliant Old Testament scholar. And the title of the book is um, What Are Biblical Values? And it's an easy read. It's 2019, 2020 publication. I think it's 19. Um, I'll link it in the description. It's phenomenal. Worth every penny. Uh, and it's again, it's an easy read. It's not like it's going to really, you know, uh, you're not going to, people don't struggle through it. Um, but he basically goes through what are biblical values, whatever that might mean, what does the Bible say about things like abortion, rape, um, uh, slavery, homosexuality, th- those sorts? Of, I think it ta- I think he touches on homosexuality. I can't remember, but um, he's talking about these major social issues and saying what is the Bible's position on these things. And what will be surprising, I think, to many is that it's really bad by you know our our our, our modern moral standards. Um, and I think we need to just engage with that and say, look, that's the ancient world. Whether we see the text as inspired or not, however we make that work, we can't say we're going to get our morals from mm. this book uh, that, that you know, says that a rapist is, uh, you know, marries his, his, um, his victim if she's unbetrothed. And can't divorce her all the days of her life without, like, it, the text has no consideration uh, toward her feelings toward the matter um, at all. And uh, I just, it, it's it's such a dangerous precedent to set. Mm, it truly is. And I, 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 it sounds like a very interesting book, too, because um, 
I, I made a video. You probably have, didn't hear about this over um, in the states, but a, a school that I used to uh, actually the principal of the school is the, he used to be in a ministry position, and he signed my ministry certificate. Um, what's that for? He um, amended the student contract, and this is a Christian high school, to say that they won't be honouring transgender pronouns and they won't accept um, homosexuals or bisexuals, <sighs> like these things where it's got. And I made this video that that kind of blew up a little bit and I was like, look, I was like, that's fine, all right? Well, it's not fine. But, like, but like, don't call it biblical morals because I'm yeah. sure you're not also teaching that it's okay to own other humans as property. I'm right. sure you're not teaching that um, that it's a sin to be divorced. I'm sure you're not teaching that. Like, I, I hope you're checking that your faculty have no one in your faculty has been divorced before. I hope you're checking that um, your faculty, no one, um, everyone believes in Yahweh and doesn't worship any other God. I hope no one has a little Buddha statue around their house right, because yeah. these are all sins, right? And I was like, you're not teaching biblical morality. You're teaching your own morality from parts of the Bible. You've just that's exactly right. Chose from yep, and that's the same thing with. Like, I've had I've had two two guests on this podcast. Um, uh, one of them was a good friend of mine uh, who I met in ministry college, one of my best friends. He was closeted for 45 years oh, wow. um, because of that. And so he told his story about, I call it surviving gay conversion therapy because he tried to pray the gay away for a long time yeah. um, and he became suicidal in the end. And then the other guest I had um, on, um, uh, she, Haley Brooke, she's a musician and a TikTok um, sensation. And same thing. She lost her entire family. She lost all mm. her family except her sister and her uncle um, when she came out as a lesbian. Um, mm. And they all point to the Bible and the immorality and stuff. But it's yeah. like you don't. You're not. These be consistent. Like yes. I, I would still have an issue if you were to be bigoted, but at least be consistently yes. bigoted. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know what I mean? So it's like uh, it's it's so frustrating to see to see this, 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 this kind of thing happening. Um, and, and the apology and the worst thing too, is it seems the two things to just touch on. It seems like people, they'll always point the finger. Th these people will point the finger at atheists and say, where do you get your morals from? <laughs> and then, and then they will argue that the slavery in the Bible isn't actually slavery. And it's like, where yeah. are you getting that from? Yeah. Like if you're if you get the your morality from the Bible, slavery is a okay. It, it appears yep. right, but you're saying no, didn't mean that. Well, you're obviously appealing to some other moral code you have inside you, some yes. some deeper feeling, some subjective feeling. Yes. Um, you get them from the same place I do, except you just overextend yourself to the Bible or whatever. Yeah. And then yeah, it's just um, and one of the to one of your posts actually, I replied um, I replied someone said um, you know. Uh, to the slavery was allowed to, and to spare lives. God was allowing slavery. Um, the arguments against um, it is an argument on murder. I just replied and said, how come we can come up with a better system today than an omniscient creator of the universe could come yeah. up with? Yeah. This doesn't seem... Yeah. I mean, it, stop teasing God. You're making God out to be really stupid, is what I'm yes. saying to these people. Yeah. Stop teasing God. You're, you're yeah. coming up with these crazy ideas about God and it's not okay, bro. Yeah. So, Yeah. I agree. Um, well, so just just to touch on um, for for those who don't know, does the Bible talk about slavery? Does the Old Testament talk about slavery? And what type of slavery is that in the Old Testament? Yeah, so there are there are three, uh, but usually I just I just talk about the two. Um, there's debt slavery, there's chattel slavery, and there's sex slavery. Um, debt slavery is simply slavery that is contingent upon a debt, the repayment of a debt. Um, and so, you know, the way that that 
pans out in the Hebrew Bible is that if, uh, and you can read about this in Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy 15, um, if someone goes into debt and they can't repay it, uh, they become uh, a debt slave, which means that, you know, it, people want to argue that it's, you know, something like a sports contract or something, but you can't, you can't leave, right? I mean, you, <laughs> like you can't wake up two weeks in and be like, nah, you know what? I'm actually, um, I, this isn't really for me. I'm going to do something else here. Mm. I'll go work at McDonald's. It was just spicy employment. That's all it was. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're kept, um, they can be beaten. They're, they're admonished to be beaten uh, or, Masters are admonished to beat their slaves. Um, and uh, after serving for six years, that, uh, you know, fulfills all of the, you know, debt repayment requirements and they're turned, they're turned loose. Um, there are differences between Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15. We don't have to get into those, but that's the general layout for debt slavery. Um, chattel slavery is simply slavery that is not contingent upon the repayment of a debt. So, for example, in Leviticus 25, 44 to 46, uh, a foreigner can be taken, uh, be they a foreigner from around, living in the nations around, or if they're you know, like a tenant farmer living in the midst of the people, uh, if they're taken as a slave, they're taken as a chattel slave. There is no uh, you know, like time of service, and then they're set free. They can be kept for life. The text is very clear. They can be passed on as inheritance. Um, and made to serve forever. So chattel slavery is just that it's, you know, it's, it's slavery. That's not contingent upon the repayment of the debt. Uh, you can also see this with Israelites. If you read Exodus 21, uh, two to six, uh, it'll talk about if a debt slave comes in during his six year term of service and is given a wife and that wife bears children, the, ch the wife and the children are the property of the master uh, that 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 children is called that, that that children those children are called houseborn uh, children and they're they're chattel slaves right there is no debt that uh, their slavery is contingent upon they're just born to a slave in the house and so they're 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 chattel slaves that doesn't mean that they could never be freed it's just that there's no requirement of the master to free them mm. um, and so those are the two types you know that there is sex slavery. Uh, again, I, I, don't, I tend to not go into it as much, um, but you can see it in like Exodus 21, 7 through 11 um, and oh. in uh, De Deuteronomy 21. Were these, um, I'm slipping back into my fundamentalist mode again. I'm trying to think of like how some of my family would answer, uh, ask the, ask questions, what questions they would ask. Um, were they, like one question is, um, were these instructions from God or were these possibly just man-made instructions? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you're asking the question, right? If you're if you're asking it from a fundamentalist framework, and you're saying, "I believe that the Bible is the inspired, God-breathed word," uh, or you know, word of God, then uh, no, these are absolutely from Yahweh, right? I mean, the text is explicit about it. If you read, for example, the beginning of Leviticus 25, as "Say unto the children of Israel these words," right? I mean, it's 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 coming from Yahweh explicitly. Uh, if you're asking me outside of a fundamentalist framework, I'd say, no, these are, this is a human book, right? This is, mm. these are uh, priests and scribes that are, that are doing their thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room. There are people that try to make such arguments, um, but you have to fundamentally alter what 
inspiration means. Mm. Um, which yeah, I'm fine with. I, let me say this: I would much prefer somebody alter their idea of inspiration so that they don't argue that slavery is okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, your so. your goal is uh, is is less um, less slavery apologetics. Yes, less please. genocide and slavery apologetics. Please, yes. yeah, please. Uh, I'm interested. I'm interested in how you would have responded to the slavery claim, claims as a fundamentalist Christian versus now. You know, I don't know that. Um, I don't know that I was ever confronted with them. I was what's called a dispensationalist, if you're familiar with that term. No. Um, and basically. It, there's a, a huge emphasis on the distinction between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. So, uh, you know, the, the law kills, right? Those passages in, in Paul's epistles um, in places like Romans and Galatians. And, um, you know, those things are really emphasized. Like, that's, that's the Old Covenant, right? That's for Israel, um, but I don't know that I was ever really pressed on the specifics there. Had I been pressed, I would imagine that my response would have been, look, God has morally sufficient reasons and his ways are higher than ours. Isaiah 55, come on, like, come on, don't you, don't you know, uh, <laughs> God, we can't, we can't, we can't get to God's level. So while we might not understand it, um, uh, God's got a reason. And the same thing would be true for why he sent a worldwide flood to kill, uh, everybody, including innocent children. Um, well, maybe they weren't innocent somehow, right? God had a plan. Like, this is, these are the sort I, of trite I responses. Had, I got invited into this Christian Discord server and um, I asked her about, about these these questions. And she said, well, maybe the babies had Nephilim. Maybe the infants that were to be slaughtered were Nephilim. Uh, okay. Maybe. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, there's always a way around it. Um just to uh, let's move on to the Q and A because there's lots of questions, um, okay. and uh, we could keep talking this for for ages because it's so interesting. And um, and I've, I've just been sitting back and enjoying enjoying this lovely bourbon and um, awesome and uh, listening to to you talk. Um, the first question I wanted to ask though um, is: so this came from someone on Discord on my Discord server. Uh, what do you think about the scriptures that require the death penalty for specific sins? So, and versus, uh, and I think what he was getting at was, um, so like, you know, the homosexual sex, violating mm -hmm. the Sabbath, cursing one's parents, you know, require mm -hmm. the death penalty. How do we interpret those scriptures? Like do, how did you view them as a fundamentalist and how do you view them kind of now? Are they actually calls to the death, like the stoning of someone for breaking the Sabbath? I see. So, so, so much, you know, I mean, if you, if you think about, where um, so many of these regulations are, or these laws are, they're in sections of holiness, right? So if you think about the holiness code in Leviticus, um, so much of, and again, this is not like my area of expertise. Uh, Joel Baden is a phenomenal scholar to talk to about this. Mm -hmm. um, but when you when you think about the uh, the holiness of the sanctuary or the holiness of Israel as a people, 
any type of defilement that comes in, this is how it's met. So like, think back to Joshua chapter seven, you know, um, uh, Israel has gone and conquered Jericho and uh, they've taken, uh, Achan has gone in uh, and he's taken some of the gold and the silver and some garments and stuff. And that was all supposed to be, you know, dedicated to destruction. Um, and instead he took so many hidden under his tent. Well, the, the result was once that was found out, there's impurity, right? He's essentially contaminated the camp. And so he's killed, he's killed his whole, excuse his whole family's killed animals, everything, anything that was in his household. Uh, if you think about in, uh, in first Samuel, when, um, the ark is being brought back and, uh, I think it's in first Samuel. I always get the person Samuel, first and second Samuel conflated, but, uh, you know, the ark is being moved and uh, a, a man reaches up who's carrying it to steady the ark because it you know, started and he's, he's struck down dead, right? There's this separation, there's this purity, there's this holiness um, that is often simply met with death, right? It's, it's, it's like a way of purifying. Um, and not, not that that's the only you know, reason I haven't thought through uh, that at any length, but um, so much of this is about holiness and sanctification and separation. Um, so there's sin in the camp, right? There's sin in the camp. It's a phrase that you, you know, it comes up. And uh, so it has to be eradicated. So how do you, how do, you do that? Um, often it's through death. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> what's, uh, this one is actually from a um, Christian who has Sumerian heritage. Uh, and is uh, I met on Omegle when I was doing some street epistemology stuff. Um, and he's jumped on the Discord server as well, and he's um, sent, he sent so many questions through, actually. And this is um, the one he really wanted me to ask. What is your honest opinion of the theory of Assyrian continuity? Do you think it's entirely true? Uh, I don't know exactly what he means by that. It, is it that, like, modern-day Assyrians are I think ethnically so. connected? I think so. I was hoping you'd uh, know what he was talking about. I, if that's what he means, because there are Assyrians today, obviously, that would claim heritage back to, um, you know, like ancient ancient Assyrians. Um, I'm not uh, like a geneticist, so I I don't I don't know that side of it. I don't have any have any opinion on that. What I will say though is that even if there's not a genetic connection between two people groups separated by time, that doesn't mean that they can't be their heritage, right? That, that there, there can't be cultural continuity between them. Um, and I think we, we've got to be very careful and sensitive to, to, to cultures around the world that, um, you know, if they, just because somebody, um, or when someone, you know, is 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 uh, saying that their heritage goes back to X, Y, or Z, that you know that doesn't mean. And, and this is just me sort of speaking extemporaneously here. I haven't like thought this through in any depth. Actually, Megan would be a great person to ask this. My wife, who's also an Assyriologist, um, but I don't think that 
just because there's not a definitive genetic connection doesn't mean that they can't uh, be part of that ethnic group. And as certainly, as certainly they can, right? There are lots of people that don't have genetic connections that are part of an ethnic group because ethnicity isn't directly connected to genetics. Um, mm. So like, I think, I think we got to be really careful uh, when we, um, when we consider that, that it's not all about genetics. Yeah. I, um, yeah, yeah, true. I think, um, you, you, would be interested. Um, I think you'd be interested to find, um, know this. I actually talked to another person on, uh, Amigal who informed me that, um, that genetics actually do matter. Uh, and mm. the Bible is actually written about only white people. Um, and it's a book for white people. Um, and the Jews have controlled everything and corrupted everything in the world. So also the earth's flat. So just so you can Hang clear on. that can up. You, you can, sorry, I just, I'm trying yeah. to get this down. Earth, so earth the, flat, earth. the Bible is about white people, white yeah, people. poor white people. Yeah. I don't Got know what it. white is in regards to <laughs> genetics, but. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, we're doing a video tomorrow, actually, <laughs> a review of that video because it was oh, good. You know, with, with, with epistemology, I have to kind of sit there and go, okay, all right. And like, <laughs> and, 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 huh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so if someone could explain to you that the Bible wasn't about white people, you know, like it's, yeah, it was amazing. Um, the it's people you meet on America. <laughs> America, yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm going to throw some names at you, and I was wondering okay. if you could give me a history, like how historical they are. And may, I was hoping okay. um, if you can give me like a percentage. So okay. I, I don't know if like 0% is they're completely mytholog mythological, Okay. 100% is they're 100% historical, and like 50% is maybe they're like legendary, somewhere in the middle. Like some okay. things about them is true. Okay. King David. Yeah. Um, is the question just so that i'm clear is the if i say a hundred percent does that mean what's in the biblical text and yeah. who he was in history match up and mm -hmm. if i say 50 percent, it's like yeah he was a real guy and probably a yeah. lot of these stories are close but they've been spun heavily yeah okay and yeah david's yeah. i'd say 50 percent then because and i can explain <laughs> that um joel baden wrote a book on the historical david and there's a lot of spin, a whole hell of a lot of spin going on in First and Second Samuel. Um, okay, like you, you'll you'll see David, who uh, it's weird. Like he he'll start off and he 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 approaches like there's a story about Naval, um, who is this like awful guy who is really really rich and has a beautiful wife. And at the beginning of the story, he sends these, you know, 10 men, young men to go tell Naval, hey, you know what? All your shepherds that have been out in the fields, we've been protecting them. I mean, sure, you didn't ask us to, but we've been, none, no harm has come to them while they've been under our protection. Please give us food and, and money and, you know, uh, sustain us, you know, so that I could take a gift back to my master, David. And when he very stingily says, no, I won't, suddenly, suddenly, Naval is dead and David is married to his wife and he's got all his shit. Like, what? But the text is very clear. 
David was nowhere near that scene. He didn't have anything. It was God that did it. <laughs> I love the way that you phrase these things too. That's so good. Um, <laughs> Because uh, you've got this like academic scholarship, and then you say like David took all his shit. You know, it's so good. <laughs> um, so uh, Moses. Yeah, I. Oh. Maybe ten percent. I mean, like, Whoa. was there a guy? Was there a guy named Moses? Maybe. I mean, but. Oh, here you we know. go. That's your next. That's the next amount of uh, your next Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all. Hey, you know what? I've got a chapter on the historicity of the Exodus in this in volume two, and uh, I'm going to do probably a bunch of interviews about the book and talk about it. So I'm sure that I will be catching tons of heat. The, again, remember everybody, I'm giving consensus positions on these yeah. things. They're not. This isn't. This isn't like my novel idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when that comes around, I'd love to interview you just on the Exodus because that's a huge um, sure. topic. Um, uh, Abraham. Yeah. I mean, was the 1%? Like, was there a guy named Abraham? Wow. Maybe. But I mean, like, none of the stories reflect, uh, you know, reality. Okay. Wow. Uh, that's very interesting to me. And um, that's obviously going to be some news for three major religions. Uh, or more. Um, <laughs> uh, what's uh, how historical is the Exodus? And we can obviously go into this in another date, but if you had to give a percentage, or it depends on what you mean, mm -hmm. as it always does, right? It was there an event or a you know a number of events where you had. Canaanites who were enslaved in Egypt that made their way out of Egypt uh, over you know hundreds of years. Several different examples of that. Sure, yeah, I'd say a hundred, probably a hundred percent. In fact, almost certainly a hundred percent. Um, you know, are there three million people walking out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness for forty years, and then coming into Canaan and conquering it? Zero. Right, like okay. no, <laughs> not that. Um, okay, not that. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that was interesting. So the next question is one that you um, that is from uh, Jacob, the Discord uh, user again. I don't know. He said that you might not want to answer this question. So if that's the case, um, we can cut it out. I don't understand the um, the nuances of it. Obviously. Um, is the but he said it might be a bit too political. Is the claimed Kurdish nativity of the Upper Mesopotamian slash Anatolian mountains true, or is the Kurdish history much more nomadic? I I don't have any information on it, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry. Just 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 so we know too. Um, just so you know, um, this Jacob, he's like a teenager. Like he's mm. and he's so switched on and so yeah willing to have conversations he's a christian and he's so willing to have conversations with um to with atheists and other people yeah. just trying to work things he's really i really like him he's a really cool dude i mean everybody um, should also everybody should know that i am hyper cautious about saying uh like about being clear that i don't know something and not mm. speaking to it if i don't know it uh so yeah i'm i'm because I, I think that 
maybe in the position that I'm in here online, I, I just don't want to, I don't want to say, I don't want to get out of my lane. Yeah, That's exactly. What I mean. So, yeah, where me, I get out of my lane all the time and I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, I think if I got a bit more academic, I'd have to stay in my lane, but it's fun to chat with people about stuff. Um, uh, why do you think the Babylonians portrayed uh, more anti- antagonistic than the Assyrians? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, it depends on, it depends on what part of the biblical text you're talking about, because the Assyrians are also depicted pretty terribly. Um, so if you think about the timeline, uh, you know, and again, Pentateuchal studies is is like not my area of specialization. There are people that dedicate their entire careers to it. Um, so So, you know, trying to determine things like, when did the Deuteronomistic history or historian write? Like, when did those books come together? It's it's, it's a whole subfield. But the times that the biblical books are coming together are during the Neo-Assyrian and the Neo-Babylonian period, and maybe, you know, certainly into the Persian period, I would think, to some degree. Um, so you'll see, uh, particularly the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians being uh, portrayed in a very negative light. And of course, the Babylonians are the ones that take Israel into cap- take Judah into captivity, right? So, uh, you know, in 586, you know, the, the, the temple's destroyed and they're taken into captivity down till like five, 539. Um, so, of course, you know, the people that are putting the biblical text together, editing the biblical text together are from the South and they're the ones that are being taken captive into, you know, into, into Babylon or into Babylonian captivity. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think naturally a lot of the animosity is going to be directed toward their captors. So. Okay. Um, do you, th- I got two more questions. Do you think the 12 tribes were actually lost because of their enslavement by the Assyrians, or can it possibly be linked to certain Jewish communities within their written down locations of enslavement? Again, this is sort of a, a sub section of uh, research in the field. I think that probably just from my very limited uh, research into this, so take everything that I say right now with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I, I think that the 12 tribe, um, you know, ideas is, is probably not as solid as we might want to think. Um, but again, that's probably more than I'd, I'd want to say about it. Um, because you have, you know, two significant, uh, catastrophic events that take place in, uh, Northern Israel, one in Northern Israel, one in Southern and, and 722, you know, Samaria is uh, destroyed and the north is taken. And then uh, in 586, you know, the temple is destroyed in in, uh, in, in Jerusalem and Jude, you know, uh, the south is taken captive. So, um, you know, what happens to the, the distinct tribes? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay. I actually live we have two more questions um but they're fun questions um so a common talking point among believers is that we needed the laws to know what good or evil were um so for example as just an aside on the, in the question for example i had uh, someone tell me on twitter that 
I wouldn't know that rape was wrong unless God told me that rape was wrong. Um, and so my question is, do we have, and this is my question, do we have moral laws before the events of the Old Testament? And if so, how do apologists get around this? Um, I'm interested to know uh, maybe the definition of moral laws. So um, like instructions on how to live, maybe? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, um, if we're talking about things like don't rape, I mean, you've, you've mm. got that back into the third millennium. Um, what to do if somebody rapes somebody. The problem that I would say in response to that is, uh, well, then you don't know slavery is wrong. Wow. Because you don't. Try, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Like, is, is there is there anywhere in the Old or New Testament? I know New Testament isn't your expertise, but is there anywhere that um, that condemns slavery? No. And so in the in the Atheist Handbook, um, I I wanted to have a chapter for you know the sake of completion. Um, I wanted to have a chapter on slavery in one of the three volumes, but I didn't want it to be just a a repetition, a, you know, a shortened repetition of the book. So I added a couple of things to it. I did a bunch of research and I wrote a section on the New Testament and early Christianity. And then I wrote one on, uh, or a section of the chapter on um, the laws of the antebellum South and how they compare. So there's actually a lot more in that chapter that is not in the book. Um, but one of the things that I deal with are these arguments from like these major passages in the New Testament, because most apologists will say, well, sure, the Old Testament doesn't condemn slavery. And what they do to get around that is they appeal to like Matthew 19, right, where Jesus is saying, well, you have heard it said that you, you, know, you can write a bill of divorcement for your wife. But in the beginning, it wasn't so. And Moses gave you this law because of the hardness of the heart. And they just extrapolate that. And say, well, that must apply to slavery as well. And it's like, mm, does it though? Um, is, it, is this thing on? Uh, yeah. So um, they'll also go to passages like Galatians three twenty eight, right? Neither male nor female, uh, a Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And they'll say, look, see, there's neither slave nor free in Christ. Therefore, he's, it's all equal, right? Well, that's not what that verse is saying. Um, they'll go to First Timothy one ten, where it talks about. Um, you know, people that are participating in the slave trade are, you know, equal to like murderers. But that's not the flex that they think it is, right? Um, and they appeal to the book of Philemon. Philemon, oh, well, it's, you know, asking uh, Philemon to set Onesimus the slave free. Well, again, it's not the flex you think it is. Um, so I deal with those things. So no, I mean, Jesus in Luke 17, it's, you know, tells his disciples, which one of you having a slave serving in the field all day when he comes in at dinner time, would say to him here, sit and eat. No, of course you wouldn't say that. You'd say, get in the kitchen and, you know, make me dinner and then get dressed and serve me and wait on me while I eat. And then only after that can you eat. Right. It, it's an accepted part of the system. And it's one that Jesus certainly isn't condemning. He's assuming that the disciples yeah. would do it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the response for me anyway. The, the, yeah, the Bible seems to make a lot more sense when you don't you don't believe that it come from God. If you just see yeah. this like people's ideas trying to work out the universe, it makes a lot of that's sense. Right. Like, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, last question. Uh, and mm-hmm. thank you so much for, um, I know we've been chatting for a long time. Um, I thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. But the last question is um, regarding your lack of belief in God. What would convince you of the existence of the Christian God now? Like what evidence would you need to see? You know, I've thought about that. Um, and I'm afraid that my answer is going to be a disappointing one. Because I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, what I would like to think is that if right now Jesus materialized in front of me, um, and, you know, being God would know what would convince me that he actually is Jesus, um, you know, then, then that would be, uh, I mean, I suspect that would be sufficient. Or if I were, you know, if I died and got to heaven and he's standing there going, sucks to be you, buddy boy, right? You know, uh, you know, I, I would you, think you that believe would in be, God in that. yeah, yeah, I, I would think I would believe at that moment. Um, but yeah, I like I because I've thought, well, what if that happened? Well, then I might think to myself, well, God, this could be some sort of maybe I'm incredibly tired and I'm hallucinating, or you know, um, but I but I don't think that I don't think that would naturally uh, necessarily like hinder me from believing. Uh, Maybe if I'm hypercritical, I would say, well, maybe I can't know for certain that that was the case. But um, I think it would have to be something appealing to my senses much more directly. Cool. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on uh, the Deep Drinks podcast, Dr. Josh. Um, Everyone needs to go and grab this book. Did the old oh it's uh, not focusing very well. No, Did you the got Old it. Testament endorse uh, slavery? Fantastic read. It's super. Thank you. The audiobook's really good as well. But I would also encourage people to check out your other book, um, Volume One of the Atheist um, Guide to the Old Testament. Um, and uh, like, I, I just also want to say, I, I want to say thank you to you because when my uh, channel was under a hundred subscribers, like I, I was, I was nothing. I mean, I don't have any subscribers at the moment, but you helped me out in the video. Like you, I, I said, Hey, I need, I need you to check this for me. It was in the new Testament as well. So it wasn't even your expertise. I, and I reached out to you on Twitter and you helped, you watched it and you helped me and you made me, made me confident in releasing it. It took me like three months to work on. So I want to say thank you. Um, and then later I saw your um, Megan, um, Megan or Megan. It's Megan. Megan. Okay. I saw her um, post on Twitter something about you, and I was like, "This man will always be my good graces." He he helped me for, for even though you know his academic powerhouse, and he helped <laughs> little old me with my uh, thing. So I do seriously appreciate it. Uh, and thank you I don't think on. anybody's ever ever referred to me as an academic powerhouse. That was very you generous. <laughs> I no, I had to cut out a lot of your like stuff at the the intro. Like I had to just mention your PhD, but there is a whole other bunch of stuff and you can check it out in the Amazon oh my gosh. Uh, review page. But thanks for coming on the Deep Drinks podcast. Oh, and thank, thank you for introducing me to just delicious bourbon. I'm normally a Scotchman, but this is awesome. <laughs> uh, and thanks heaps.